just the thought process behind managing the ownership structures and who's in and who's out and what does that look like and who owes who, that takes away the brain power from a small business owner to run the business. Welcome to Bruce News Week, recorded on 6th October 2022. I'm Matt Kirkegaard, founder and editor of Bruce News, and this week I'm joined by industry consultant Sabrina Kunz. Good morning, Sabrina. Hey, Matt. Just the two of us today. I know it's it's sort of a um, a weird full circle after you were it was it was you and me and and industry folks, me and industry folks, and now we're back to just the two of us. So it's um it's been a full circle. Well, we've had such a good response to having. Uh, a rotating panel of guests on that we're obviously working on doing that, but other people don't necessarily work to our time frames. And uh, <laughs> mornings in the brewing industry aren't always a good time to get people. Not always. Anyway, uh, what, what's been happening for you this week? Look, I'm not going to go into life with a toddler is what's <laughs> happening to me. I don't have anything interesting to talk about. I get to go out on Friday night, and so I might actually have a beer of the week uh, next week, which is very exciting. I think there's going to be uh, a lot of people in your boat. That anyone with children at the moment, I think post-COVID, uh, suffering from recurring bouts of stuff, uh, which is, funnily enough, a couple of our podcast guests had to cancel for exactly the same reason. So if you're in that boat, yeah. listeners, uh, we, we feel for you. And hospitalities, like I mean, it's just everywhere. Anyway, it's rampant. Um, so I'm sorry, dear listeners, for sharing my woes with you. Well, we are well, Sabrina. We may as well get on with the news. Some... Significant stories, not a, not a busy week of news, but there are some significant stories all the same. Firstly, uh, without ticking too many bingo boxes, Behemoth crowdfunds as it eyes Australian expansion. And we've covered this more from that angle than the uh, equity crowdfunding. Behemoth Brewing Company is seeking to raise $3 million for a, crowd, for a crowdfund on the platform Snowball Effect as the brewery expands into Australia. The crowdfund values Behemoth at New Zealand $35.9 million, approximately $31.6 million Australian, with up to 7.69% of the business facade. The New Zealand brewery is looking to expand the brewery's canning lines, brew kit and capacity with the aim of expanding production volumes to 2 million litres annually from its current 350,000 litres over the next four years. It's not the first time that Behemoth has raised capital this way. It raised $1.8 million in 2019 on Pledge Me and the same again in 20 minutes on a, in a crowdfund on Snowball Effect in 2020. So, uh, you know, one of the breweries that has uh, sought uh, equity crowdfunding and divesting its ownership to, uh, to, to, to expand. There was some interesting chat in the Radio Brews News Facebook group about this article just about sort of, you know, behemoths uh, fits and starts into the Australian market. Um, and, you know, they've had this challenge, of course, that they can't be that they have to trade under a different name. So they've got this Cher Brewing Co that um, allows them to use their same sort of brand iconography but trade under a different name in Australia. So, you know, that has caused a bunch of different challenges. But it has been interesting um, in a pure business sense to watch the way in which Behemoth that did for many years was only a um, contract brewed after sort of five or six years in, got their first major brew kit. But the way that they've then partnered internationally, so, you know, the article touches on Heart of Darkness out of Vietnam. Um, they've also then, you know, had this announcement around Ballast Point. So they've actually been quite um, 
strategic in looking to grow their markets, uh, maybe a bit differently to how some of those other New Zealand breweries have gone about things. Um, you know, so it'll be interesting to see whether, you know, in 12 months' time uh, we are going to see, you know, Churley, Cher Brewing Co. more widely in Australia, whether it works. From a beer point of view, you, you know the market over there a little bit better than I do. Are the beers tremendously different from a range of, you know, similar breweries? Like, are, are they better in quality? Are they more on point? Are they more cutting edge than anything else that's going on over there? Behemoth? Yeah. Um, I, I don't think so necessarily. I mean, obviously everything, you know, if you're looking to benchmark against a great uh, New Zealand brewing company um, in terms of brand, uh, partnerships, you've got Garage Project who have sort of really led the way in that space. But what I do think uh, Behemoth have done is they've always um, had it started with quite hop forward beers. They're still producing a lot of those. Um, and they have loyal followers in terms of their particular styles. Um, and they do push the boat out um, for some of their seasonal releases, but I'm not sure that it's uh, necessarily distinct. What they have done, and, you know, hearkening back to a conversation we were just having offline about brand, is they've used this uh, Churley, their little sort of monster icon, really effectively in the way that they have described um, their beers and their icons. And that has created something that is quite distinct. And they've been able to expand that into merch, venues, new brands. And so they have done that quite well. Which is fascinating, not really knowing the market, but yeah, so seeing so many highly regarded brewing, you know, breweries in New Zealand and what is it about the ones that break out? And they do seem to have a very, very strong brand and a very, very disciplined marketing approach, which are two of the things. And I mean, even some of the things that they've done, we, we, we see a lot of Australian breweries talking about, oh, well, we've sent beer to Hong Kong, we've sent beers to Singapore, we've sent beers to England as, as a promotion. But then, again, I don't want to get myself in trouble, but for some of them it feels like a dice throw that they can do it somehow differently to other breweries and make money on it, um, where exporting beer is incredibly expensive, it's very inefficient, and it's never good for the product um, to, 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 to send. So you, you, your product in foreign markets is never going to be in the condition it is in your home market. Behemoth seems to have been smart by creating partnerships to brew locally in market, which, again, you're not sending water overseas. You're sending your IP overseas and getting it made locally, and so you're going to get a fresher product, which, which to my way of thinking, you know, your strong brand will still carry, your New Zealand provenance will still carry, but you're going to get some efficiencies that may make that strategy actually viable than trying to ship pallets of beer around the world. Yeah, and I haven't worked on this on the Australian side, but on the New Zealand side, I mean, Yeasty Boys, if anybody recalls that brand, was sort of the first, you know, many years ago um, that actually started producing their beer in the UK. And ultimately the team moved to the UK because as Behemoth points out in this article, getting a slice of the UK market is so much larger than a slice of the New Zealand market. So they actually ended up finding that Yeasty Boys is now made under contract in New Zealand 
um, and Yeasty Boys, which was a New Zealand brand, is made out of the UK and that has now become their primary market for their beer. But they still really have that um, New Zealand provenance play. But they've moved their entire operations. And so they were one of the first breweries to undertake that leap and look at the overseas market. And by, you know, all accounts, this deal with Ballast Point is taking that same approach, you know, how do we get a tiny slice of a big pie as opposed to fighting for a bigger slice of what is, for all intents and purposes, a small pie in New Zealand? And that's why the Australian market is so attractive to New Zealand breweries. You know, and they've crowdfunded several times. You know, they've got a board. Um, it'll be interesting to see. I have no doubt that this capital raise will be successful for them. Oh, no, no, no doubt. But again, we're... It was less about the capital raise and some of the strategy around that that makes them so yeah. successful. Yeah, and the fact that they keep, I mean, you know, they keep raising um, and it's interesting to see, you know, not to really do a deep dive on this, but their valuation at New Zealand, $35.9 million, which would come in at less than $35 million Australian um, with the volumes that they have talked about and the deals that they have in play and the clear governance structures that they have in play and all of these other things compared to some valuations we're seeing in crowd funds in the Australian market for breweries not making as much without big deals for expansion, without the governance structure in play, just really shows, um, you know, how wide these valuations can be across all of these oh, And then speaking of that, in 2020, um, Michael Donaldson, uh, a New Zealand journalist that writes for us occasionally, um, the business was valued at just over $23 million ahead of the first capital raise. And that was a revenue multiple of 5.5. Um, and this time, um, so in 2020, the second time, it was based on a multiple of 4.05 on predicted annual revenue of $8.4 million uh, and a multiple of 3.9. So, I mean, if revenue multiples are problematic, because yep. it doesn't for all it, the reasons it, it does yeah. yep. um, but even on revenue multiples it seems much more moderate than what a lot of the Australian breweries are doing yeah but even so um, Parrot Dog which was valued at 16.6 million uh, when it did its second capital raise in 2017 and Lion purchased Panhead in 2017 for 25.1 million um, that actually, like, actually, that had fifteen point one million upfront with another ten million contingent on earnings in the following four years. So that expired last year. So again, it's an example where equity crowdfunding multiples are vastly different to what anyone actually pays for a brewery, and yet, and I'm not so, so much talking about Behemoth here because they seem to be um, a little bit different. But a lot of the Equity crowdfundings here are based on an investment that the investment can only pay a dividend if there is a purchase, and none of the purchase prices reflect what the equity crowdfunding is. So even if you do get the buyout that everyone dreams of, it doesn't. There's no world in which it's going to be the multiple that they think it's going to pay a dividend on. No, and I was going to sort of um, talk about your conversation with Joe Cook uh, elsewhere in the podcast, but that was a really interesting insight from him on his exit 
you know, his strategy to grow businesses and sell businesses and always being open to the prospect of selling, but actually talking about, well, you need to be, um, you know, talking about the liquidity required in the business to be able to exit and the expectations of shareholders and actually being um, building a business that is attractive to be sold. And it was really interesting thinking, hearing him talk about those things and then thinking about the situation that's been created with complex ownership and dear podcast listeners I'm putting them in air quotes ownership structures created by equity crowd funds and whether that does in fact make a business more liquid and attractive for a sale or a buyout and so it's just you know it's this fascinating sort of um this swirl of all of these pieces that seem to just keep like linking and coming up at the moment so um anyway it's um we might see some chur brewing in the next yep. year. And we'll, we'll touch very briefly. Uh, we don't want to do equity crowdfunding again. Uh, no. Just in, in the show me the money segment. Hey, Matt, if you were chur brewing and you were coming to Australia and you were thinking about how do I get new can labels, what do you think you might do? Well, I would call my good friends at Rallings Label <laughs> Stickers and Packaging because they know labels and they know how to make your labels pop on a can. And uh, they're easy to deal with. Great to deal with, and uh, they just really are solutions focused in the, uh, in, in, as we say in the uh, you know, sort of entrepreneurial world. Um, but they can get the specs uh, right so your can and bottle looks the best at all times, even when you are sending to another country. Call the guys at Rallings Label Stickers and Packaging on 1300 852 235 or email sales at au to see how they can help your brand to sing. And you'll find that number and the email in the show notes and also rallings are on our business directory, the best business directory in the industry. I absolutely loved that Joe Cook in his Beer is a Conversation entirely unprompted was like, well, if Rallings uh, can labels are the mini billboard, then T-shirts are the medium billboard. And I'm like, when has our Rallings ad become the basis of explaining a third-party business? But here we are. <laughs> Well, if, if, if you have a business that supplies the brewing industry, we can do. We can have the rallies effect for your business as well. Just uh, get in touch, and uh, that, that, this is a house ad, by the way. But uh, yeah, um, if you would like a little bit of that pixie dust that we spread on brands like uh, Rallings, they're good people. They deserve it. But so does your business. So give us a call. Anyway, um, back to the news. Brisbane's Easy Times appoints a voluntary administrator. A bit of a sad story. Brisbane's Easy Times Brewery has announced it has appointed a voluntary administrator to assist the business to restructure. In a statement issued to Brews News, the company said it's a necessary but largely strategic process that should not be mistaken for insolvency. Voluntary administration is a process under corporations law to provide a business experience in trading difficulties the opportunity to be administered in a way that maximises its chances to continue in existence or result in a better outcome for the company's creditors than would if it was immediately wound up. Um, under the process, Easy Times is continuing continuing to trade with several key events scheduled to be held at the adjacent Gabba Cricket Ground, which are significant revenue drivers for the business. So this is like this is an interesting one. I, I probably need to preface these comments by saying. The people who are running it now are slightly different from the people who founded the, the, the business. When, when was Easy Times founded, Matt? How old oh, it was only 2020. It was only like immediately pre-pandemic, right. um, but it had been in planning for a while. Um, and it's, yeah. you know, it, 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 this is one of the hard conversations to have because you don't want to be critical of good people. But, you know, 
It, it, it's, it's a common thing that you see from startups in, in the brewing world that they are sold this idea. You know, craft brewing is such a fun, attractive um, industry that we're filled with good people and a, gen, a general, you know, we love this industry, it's an awesome industry to work in, that sometimes I think it makes it look a lot easier than it really is. And at the end of the day, it's a very hard business, it's a low margin business, and it's an increasingly competitive business. And, you know, you, you see people that have a love of beer, they, they've got a, an idea for a, a brewery, and they just think that if you build it, they will come. So the partners bought it, right? Like, so the story kind of goes, you know, there were a couple of guys started it. Well, there was a then couple was a bit of primarily a... um, who wanted to get it started. They brought in, you know, they they, they wanted investors. They, they brought in investors. There were some people that I know who had expressed interest but then looked at the model and just couldn't see how it would work and so it didn't go ahead. Um, and some yeah. of them have gone on to open other breweries um, subsequently. Yeah. Um, and I believe the people who are running it now, um, you know, took either sweat equity or, um, you know, were debtors initially um, and then yeah. came to run. But the- yeah, there, there was a transition period there. So given that it's only two years old, there's already been a transition of ownership. That's a quite a taxing thing to go through. Uh, what you've talked a lot about exiting a business, partner splitting up, I don't want to call it a partnership dispute. That's not what I mean, but a change in direction, maybe people exiting, people coming in. You know, from undercapitalized businesses that haven't necessarily made great decisions early on, that saddle them with. And I'm talking generally here, not specifically about yeah, exactly. So that's what I'm sort of saying. You know, like that. Just the thought process behind managing the ownership structures and who's in and who's out and what does that look like and who owes who. That takes away the brain power from a small business owner to run the business, yep. right? Like like that in and of itself is a huge drain on the resources of an already very small business as that tumultuous stuff is kind of happening in the background. And so you go, that's not the setup to a great start as and, it is. And very often you see, again, not speaking about easy times specifically, but you see businesses at start where founders that aren't going to be the brewers, they're looking to employ an additional brewer at additional cost have made decisions around brewing equipment that yeah. they're probably not qualified to make or that the brewer would have made different decisions um, for. And that's yeah. a very common error that I've seen across a whole lot of breweries. That, All the time, um, yeah. had, that, that is a legacy problem. So, yeah, so and, and some or all of these problems have featured into the challenges that Easy Times had at the same time. Curran, the brewer, has been making some cracking beers. It was one of the breweries that we had yep. on at uh, the exhibition and they were very, very popular. Um, you know, so The branding is really good. It's quite distinct. They've done a really good job of branding. They actually do have a, a really good location in terms of access to game day crowds. Um, so, you know, there are some potentials there. Way back many years ago, I was an insolvency lawyer. So... Um, you know, the crowd that I used to run with then uh, were out the other week and they were all chatting about this because they were drinking Easy Times beer. So I think it'll be really interesting to see whether a VA process uh, can identify opportunities for Easy Times to turn it around 
or whether, um, you know, it is, it, it's so sunk um, that, you know, there is no way to pay out the creditors because, you know, the uh, equally, I think, you know, I think what's really interesting for the industry to see in the way that Easy Times has couched this is that maybe if they brought in a financial advisor earlier or, or somebody independent to provide some advice or take a look at the business, it wouldn't have reached this. But this is essentially bringing in an independent expert to restructure the business at a time at which if you don't do it, you will be trading insolvent. And so they are really buying themselves sort of a last opportunity to restructure and, and get moving. And they do want to trade out of it. They, you know, they believe that, Having spoken about that, there's a viable business underneath, um, and that they're just, yeah. sort of, and also they, they they want the support of customers that you know they've entered administration, voluntary administration. Notices are published about that. They wanted to get out and say, look, we we are hopeful because straight away it's a small industry. People start deciding not to supply, you know, for a whole range of reasons, and you know because they're, they're worried that they're not going to get paid. That was on my list of sort of things to bring up. So sort of easy times earlier in the year hosted a major fundraising event, um, coordinated the staff there, put in massive amounts of time to coordinate a fundraising event post the flooding. So they did a huge amount of work and actually brought the Brisbane industry, the beer industry together in a way that hadn't been seen for quite some time. So the sunny coast crowd are really um, tight here in Queensland, but the Brisbane crowd doesn't get together nearly as much as they should sort of as a collective and Easy Times really facilitated that. And it's been fabulous to see how many breweries from the area have then come back and, you know, put their kegs on at Easy Time while they're in voluntary administration donated supported and so the brewing community has come in behind them and saying thanks for supporting us back in february we're now going to support you and so you know not to be underestimated how doing some of those community activities community building including amongst the brewing industry actually drain from running your own business you know so i just think you know it's one to watch for sure yeah you know what you're hearing around the ridges is that it's a very tough market. Anyone who's listening in the, the industry will know that it's a really tough market at the moment. And I think, um, you know, COVID was tough um, for a lot of businesses when they couldn't trade. But I think the some of the hangover from COVID, um, you know, if, if just and the economy. living pressures. Yeah, um, yeah. The inflation, all of those things. Um, and some breweries expanded on the back of, wholesale, you know, or retail sales, package sales during COVID that haven't been maintained. And there's, you know, like it, it, it's a really interesting market. And even the tap, the, the, the draft market has changed fairly significantly. Um, you know, I was in Melbourne over the weekend. I was astounded to see, um, as you, you know, caught a tram through suburbs, the big pubs in, uh, you know, most of the suburbs I passed through, had you know mountain goat four pines um, pirate life umbrellas um, so they craft there's been a you know a shift to craft but a lot of the hotels have seemed to have done very strong deals with the craft arms of the the, the major brewers um, and you know that's maybe it's just I hadn't been to Melbourne for quite a while but that seemed to be a very marked shift from my previous observations of, of, of the Melbourne market. Hmm. 
Interesting. Mm. So, so, Melbourne listeners, um, let us know. Yeah, let us know what you're seeing on taps. Are you seeing fewer uh, independent craft beers on tap, or are you seeing an expansion of the uh, you know the, the the very good craft offerings, but from some of the uh, non-independent? Well, it's fascinating, Matt. Um, I don't know if you meant to do this. Maybe you did in your geniusness of planning. But actually, our mailbag this week is from Daniel Law and he just wrote in and said, uh, listen to the podcast every week, uh, heard a recent podcast and discussion about local and regional craft beer options, live in Nelson Bay for about four years now and the craft beer options have definitely changed since the sale of a few craft independent craft breweries to some of the bigger players. We've always had one local brewery within 15 to 20 minutes. Going back a few years ago, the best craft beer option in the local pub scene was the Stone and Wood Pacific Ale. Now, since the sales, Bolter XPA, Voodoo Ranger, Hazy IPA, found a couple of limited taps of sours and IPAs. I think the options for craft closer to home is definitely improving. Yes, buying local is important, but sometimes you have to take what you can get. And it's almost sort of the reason I brought this up now, Matt, was because it is that example of him saying, look, the local hotels where I am, a bit regional, um, the best craft that I can get is craft from major breweries. That's sort of, that's what I can get locally. So I want to support local. I'm supporting my local hotel. But what I can get, uh, the best craft I can get is is what is clearly in this case, you know, either an Asahi or a Lion deal. Yep. So. And, and, and I mean, that's an interesting point because local is what local is, you know, whether it's a local brewery or just your local independent pub that may not be itself allied to local independent breweries. And that, you know, I, I've made the analogy before or just made the reference to what I call the gravity of business, which is just the, the constant downpullings that business operates under. And, you know, 15 years ago, publicans were signalling that, you know, yes, they like the idea of independent craft beer, but they don't necessarily want to fill their 15 or 10 taps with 10 entirely different accounts, which is 10 times the yep. paperwork, 10 times the ordering, 10 times the deliveries, and it's incredibly inefficient to do it that way. And if you can get a good enough tap list with one phone call that satisfies, and, and that's very much what I was seeing in, in, in Melbourne. You know, when you've got Mountain Goat, uh, you know, when from Asahi you can order Mountain Goat, Bolter, um, Four Pines, um, Pirate Life, and then have your Carlton Draft, your Great Northern um, as well. And particularly in, re and this is why we've always had this conversation about regional areas, you know, if you've got to drive 20 minutes and get in a car because there's no public transport and so you can't have a couple, but you can walk to your local hotel um, and enjoy a craft range, then you're likely to, you're more likely to do that. And there is a you know, through Lion or Asahi, there is a craft range that you can take on. And in particular in regional areas, when you think about distribution, I mean, we talked about this a few weeks ago with Gage, for example, but, you know, these large brands being able to distribute, you know, 12 different kegs in one truckload to one regional town as opposed to each independent brewery having to find a distributor get their keg out there it's a complete that that is why we haven't seen this sort of push into a, you know distant or small regional and so it, it's such a huge you know the distribution challenge means for ho these hotels they can get on one truck one order and they know that they're going to get the 12 different kegs that they want for that or 60 different kegs that they want for and, that. and that's again to talk about the gravity that's where you know i've seen 
regional communities where there has been a publican or a bottle shop manager, and it's often an individual that's passionate about craft beer themselves, they will see an opportunity because they're the only ones doing it. And secondly, they have a personal interest in it so they can do it well, will then become a bit of a craft beer hub for the local surrounding area. And that, you know, in regional areas, that can be a significant um, distance. They do it, they become a hub, it creates excitement, it populates the area with craft beer drinkers. Once there's a market, there's no barrier to entry to the other publicans going, hey, there's something to this craft beer market, and then just going to their line or their CUB supplier, putting on, oh, well, you know, what have you got that's like this thing that I've seen here? And, you know, those offerings become good enough for the vast majority. And so you've seeded a market, but then you can't, there's, there's no barrier to entry for others. to So, so the market is no longer exclusively yours um and it, it's you know it's a, it's a really hard business nut to crack how you how you do that and then you know when you have a business that built itself on the promise of independence for so long like stone and wood then suddenly saying well of course we're going to sell any brand equity that independence has you know brought up evaporates because people go well you know independence doesn't matter too much because obviously can still get stone and wood um, or, you know, why support another independent? Because when they grow, they're going to sell out as well. So what does it matter? Um, so these are just the, the, the currents that every independent small producer is swimming against in a very mainstream market. Yeah, well, it's interesting to see your observations about sort of the growth, you know, um, in Melbourne and then also Daniel's observation about what he can get regionally and actually how those two are really seem aligned. Moving on, Aurora opens $25 million glass recycling plant. Uh, despite the beer industry's move to cans, Aurora's $25 million investment in glass recycling highlights ongoing demand for glass in both beer and brand extensions. Uh, Aurora, which achieved $4.1 billion in revenues last year, is targeting net zero by 2050 uh, and a 40% reduction in scope one and two emissions by 2035. And the opening of the facility is an important step towards this. The recycling process, called beneficiation, uh, involves removing impurities from used glass through crushing, cleaning, and using optical technology for colour sorting and separating it from contaminants. The process delivers clean, crushed glass known as colour, so it can be manufactured into new products. The investment will allow Aurora to process up to 150,000 tonnes of glass per year, the equivalent of 750 million beer bottles. It received $8 million as part of the total from the South Australian government as part of the Recycling Modernisation Fund. Um, Yeah, interesting to see. It was when we were talking about this internally, um, you know, it was such a strong move to cans um, as a packaging medium for craft beer. I, I did have to make the point is the move to cans a permanent thing or is it a fashion thing? Is it a long-term fashion thing? You know, so do we cover this because it is re- well, it, it's relevant to, to the packaging industry, but some brewers are still um, available in glass. Um, but our cans are, you know, we're going through the stovepipe jeans phase or the, you know, skinny jeans phase and we're going to come back to baggy jeans you know, in seven, eight, nine years when people want something different to mark out something different or when glass becomes more green, uh, you know, at least as perceptions. 
I've talked about this before, but um, and I know people hate me referring back to the New Zealand market all the time, but that's obviously where I spent most of my time. And in there, we hadn't set up yet a recycling, um, a container refund scheme. And one of the things that was happening in New Zealand, in particular for the large brewers who had a much larger proportion of their products, and the same is true here in glass as well, were actually looking to get a carve out from the container refund scheme for glass because the point about glass is it's infinitely recyclable. Um, aluminium, um, there is a challenge to recycle both in New Zealand and Australia. There's a lot of offshoring of that. So whilst it um, can be recycled, it is not infinitely recyclable. So I think, um, you know, given what we've seen in supply chain, um, an observation I made a couple of years ago in relation to all of the inputs that we need for beer, um, and this was in, in the New Zealand market, but I think it holds true, having all of these things available within Australia is a good thing because um, to your point about whether cans last forever, we don't know, but we also don't know when the next global pandemic is coming and entire um, global supply chains shut down. And if we can infinitely recycle glass uh, in Australia and manufacture that here, it means that at least for our um, industry, there is some certainty of, about access to the packaging that we need for our goods. It might not be the packaging that we need today. So, you know, will it be consumer preferences that change our packaging? Will it be, um, you know, we know that some of the shift of cans was the art, some of the shift to cans was weight, some of the shift to cans was um, ease of distribution. Will there be other things that cause a full cycle back to um, bottles and so, or, or a greater uptake of bottles beyond, um, you know, the mainstream, mainstream um, beers? It'll be really fascinating to see what happens here. We do know that in the wild ferment space, um, which is sort of a growing niche within craft, you know, they're, they're being put into the 750 wine bottle shaped bottles. And so, you know, we are seeing quite a quite a few uh, glass coming out of that niche segment that is a growing niche within how we define craft. So I just think it's, it can't, it can't be bad. This will sound odd, but the thing I love about writing about beer isn't actually the drinking beer. I love drinking beer clearly. Yeah. That's my passion. But the thing I love about writing about the beer industry is in a world of incredibly complex problems, the brewing industry shrinks every facet of, you know, the world down to a glass of beer. So, so, so you know, yeah. Um, yeah. sustainability, you can look through through the prism of a glass of beer and what's sustainable there rather than looking at, you know, massively complicated issues. But you, know, you, you raise a really interesting point and just as a, point of interesting economics you know outside of a global pandemic and international war when global supply chains run efficiently and cheaply by and large um, we look at the cost of packaging and it's much more efficient and cheap um, which brings all of our um, supply line you know inputs prices down to get packaging made overseas as soon as the global supply chain locks up as it did over the last two years and you couldn't, you know, re remember we were putting beer into uh, milk, plastic milk containers um, yep. because we couldn't get growlers, because we couldn't do that, because we didn't make it. And even um, when breweries were pivoting to sanitizer, they couldn't get the little plastic bottles to yep, put sanitizer exactly. in because they all come out of China. 
it's more expensive to produce here, but then suddenly you realise, hold on, we do need some, even if it's more expensive. So uh, this came up for me when I was... Um you know, reporting out to government about a particular program in New Zealand. And they sort of said, well, what do you think? And this was maybe late stage 2020, you know, what do you see happening? And I was like, I'm confident that large multinational companies now are going to be hedging against um, global supply chain issues that we've seen, um, including in relation to a whole host of areas. But it came up from where are you contracting your hops from? I mean, if your entire key flagship product relies on US hops and we couldn't get containers, like there was a lack of shipping containers and you couldn't get them into port, your key product, you can no longer yep. make. But, but that, that, that's true. Of, you know, conversely, it's true if you are entirely relied on Australian hops and there's a massive bushfire, for example, as we've been saying, or a hailstorm, um, you know, it's it's challenging this is risk profile 101 for businesses exactly and so that's where i sort of landed which is the large businesses will be hedging against this right they will be starting to look at how do i make um how do i ensure every beer has multiple hops you know my flagship beers have multiple hops so that i can sort of um take one out and put one in without overly affecting the flavor profile that is i'm just using hops Mm. as a single example here but they will be doing this at every element of their supply chain um, and so for small to medium businesses, it's really difficult to sort of um, think about all of those things, which is why at an industry-wide level, we step back and we go, it can't be bad that we have recycling that can manufacture new glass in Australia just in case, right? That's hedging for our industry just in case. Um, so, yeah, I think it's great news. But yeah, and as I said, you know, very complex conversations being had through, you know, the prism of a glass of beer, um, which I find fascinating. But I think what is so great is that hopefully people who are working in it, like they're so busy, you know, trying to not go into voluntary administration, <laughs> um, trying to service their customers, trying to distribute their beer, trying to figure out how they fit in in this really competitive market. How do they stay afloat? that actually being able to watch these macroeconomic pressures move around them is really difficult. And so hopefully, um, you know, they are keeping an eye on, um, you know, and, and again, not to harp back to it, but Joe Cook talked about this a lot, like watching they were in the US and they're like, mm, are we underservicing this market? What's happening over here that we need to be aware of? Why is that shift happening? And really thinking about it in a bit of a detailed way. So hopefully, um, hopefully we can help people think about some of those macro issues. Yeah, in other news, now you've put in uh, Beer as a Conversation, the Joe Cook Beer Fans um, Beer as a Conversation. Yeah, so I just, I mean, I've obviously mentioned it a couple of times, but I just wanted to loop back to you discussed with him sort of a quick conversation around Slimline Cans and Cameron Brown um, posted in our Facebook group that he had heard Mike Morgan on our podcast talking about slimline cans and the effect on stubby holders and actually was able to get a photo out of an old uh, Cooper's slimline can stubby holder um, that was very old, but um, it was very cool to see, you know, this sort of circular effect of our entire sort of everybody in our industry, like, you know, really thinking about that and then it coming back into the Facebook group. So shout out to Cameron for sharing that um, photo. It was pretty cool. Yeah, but, but also actually I 
didn't actually realise or I don't remember it being the, 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 the case that it was actually Coopers wanting to allow, you know, Coopers changing the size of their bottles to allow 13 cartons to a layer on a pallet to allow cheaper transport. Um, again, I, I don't ever remember that being given as the reason. Um, and if anything, I would have assumed that it was Coopers trying to look like a cool kid because they used to have the stubby, the short stubby bottles in, yeah. in a world that had gone to the long neck um, changed format of stubby. And I, you know, I remember um, I, I interviewed Bernie Powers of Powers Brewery, um, you know, in the early 2000s talking about when he launched Powers Brewery in the late 80s. And even before they had a beer, they were market testing, you know, bottle sizes um, to sort of see what had the best consumer. And in those days, stubbies were literally stubbies. They were the, you know, very short-necked. And they went for the, 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 the long neck. And even though they were pouring the same beer from every bottle, the taste group identified the long neck bottle that they went with as the beer being better, which was a fascinating, like I just find that sort of stuff fascinating. Same beer from a different bottle can massively impact the audience, you know, perception of the beer. And if you'd asked me, I would have thought that Coopers was just being uh, in that, but there was a very, from what uh, Cameron's saying, there was an interesting, you know, sound business model that the cartons got smaller so you can add more cartons to a, to a layer which gets more beers onto a pallet. And that is exactly one of the drivers for cans, right? You could get more beer onto one pallet. That was precisely one of the drivers from a business standpoint, right? It helped that consumers were driving it, but it was a little bit of, you know, um, logistics behind that. So it's, it's just fascinating to see um, the worlds collide there. Loved it. So Cameron, uh, and, and as with all of our letter writers, uh, drop us an email at producer at bruiseuse.com.au and we will get a bruiseuse bar blade. Increasingly redundant in a can-fueled world, but, you know, it's just a little bit of merch. At least, at least you won't wear it out. Um, we do need to revisit our merch offering uh, to make sure that we're becoming relevant. So. But anyway, Sabrina, your show me the money segment. We don't want to talk too much about equity crowdfunding. No, this was just, um, I really appreciate, again, all the listeners posting and they're clearly tracking along um, all of the uh, crowdfunds like we are. So yesterday, Valhalla Brewing, who are building a brewery in North Geelong, announced expressions of interest on Birchall and Two Thumb Brewing in Christchurch NZ have um, actually announced a raise between 400000 and $1.5 million on Equitize. So... Um, you know, you'll recall we had a bit of a long list last week. It just sort of says that there's sort of between Australia and New Zealand, there's there's around about eight um, in various stages uh, in the market at the moment. And I, I, I just can't understand in any business that you would shoehorn so many active crowdfundings into a marketplace at the same time because you'd imagine that the the market for these things isn't huge. I don't know how to say with any delicacy, I think that if we were to step back and run the numbers, there is one company benefiting the most from crowdfunds in the brewing industry with no skin in the game to the impact that it is going to have to distort the market, no skin in the game for the long-term um implications zero interest in tracking their very basic regulatory obligations and so 
Um, you know, I just, um, I could rant pretty hard on this and so I'm just going to um, not. I guess the flip side to it is that there are so many people participating in the brewing industry hoping to make money and yet I remember the saying that the only people who actually made money out of like every gold rush ever were the people who were selling picks and shovels. You know, because the, the, the people who are out there mining for gold are working very hard for generally for very little return. You'll get one or two people who strike it rich, but the people who actually make money are the people who are creaming, you know, selling supplies to those people. And that's pretty much virtual. I mean, I, yeah, I, I think the, the rate at which they're doing it, the fact that there seems to be no, you know, no judgment as to how it's, it's any, any anyone who comes in can do it you know, is largely strip mining the last bit of goodwill from the legacy craft beer industry. But anyway, good luck, Tom. You know, free market, this is what happens if it all comes crashing down. Call us Chicken Little. We'll just keep the tally running um, for our listeners and thanks to everybody for contributing every time they see a new one um, into the Facebook group and the ongoing colourful conversation about... Uh, about this and good luck to the individual breweries who need that money to oh, yeah. and, um, uh, yeah. service their customers, build their brewery and stay alive. That is not the issue yeah. that I have with this situation. Yeah. Uh, actually, uh, and just to your point, thank you to the people who are bringing them to our attention. Let's face it, you can't miss them. The way that the uh, Facebook algorithm serves up everyone 75 times a day to me. Oh, drives me. It, it's such a turn off. Like, I'm just like, I got it, mate. You want my money. And I don't even think I can block it because I feel obliged to to even um, see everyone because that tells me something about the the, the industry, the algorithm. So I can't even go, look, I've seen that enough because I'm not doing my job if I do. Such is the curse of the beer. Anyway, Brewery of the Week is brought to you by our good friends at Bluestone Yeast. Did your last shipment of yeast turn up warm and half dead? Did you pay thousands of dollars for liquid yeast? That arrived at the brewery warm and non-viable. Well, did you know that Bluestone Yeast ensures that your liquid yeast arrives at the brewery cold, fresh and ready to pitch to make award-winning beer? Because they are local, there are no delays with customs or the Australian Quarantine Inspection Service, the yeast leaves their lab and goes straight to your door using trusted freight companies. You can reach out to them at info at bluestoneyeast.com.au or call Derek on 03 and talk all things yeast. So those emails, numbers are both in the show notes and also in our business directory. Um, now my brewery, the, as I said, over the weekend I was in Melbourne. A um, couple of good stories out of that, but uh, I actually caught up with James Smith from the Crafty Pint for a beer. Had a, had a good chat with him and he suggested uh, Bodrigi Brewing, which was in the area that we were at. And we've written about Bodrigi before because as listeners would know I have 100% hearing loss in one ear and sitting in any form of noisy environment and having a conversation is just hell on earth for me. Um, and for a, a, a warehouse brewery, I just think Bodrigi has done it beautifully. They've invested in, you don't just have that shiny insulation layer under the, under the roof, they've invested in um, what looks like, you know, professional sound treatment, um, soft plants, the way the speakers are set up. You don't just have two booming speakers at the back. Um, so from that, when you consider that the modern brew pub is, you know, the modern church for some people, 
um, or at least the modern pub where people gather, they want to talk. There are no, by and large, uh, plasma screens. People want to engage. Just that little detail, which is hugely significant for me, um, I was really impressed. But then great food, really, really good quality, uh, not just knocking out the chicken nuggets and the, you know, the, the dude food. The food that they were doing was very good. It was very interesting, um, you know, very well prepared. And the beers, you know, at the end of the day, it's a brewery, but craft breweries are no longer just the place you go to get a different beer. It is the, you know, the whole offer that they offer. Bedrigi Brewing in uh, Melbourne, very impressive. So that's my brewery of the week. Awesome. You've sold it to me. I'm down there in a couple of months, and so um, I'll put it on the list. Very exciting. I, I did revisit fruity beer last week and did say that you know like sure sneer 10 years ago mea culpa i would have gone i would have written excoriatingly about you know they're trying to glom onto a you know a, a craft beer trend in a really meaningless way but you know that's my view of a lot of the craft beer trends these days you know when you're just pouring you know fruit extracts into flavor your, your beer and you're calling it edgy and experimental craft beer. I, I think a brewery that's nakedly doing it, there's a certain transparency and respect. But Michael shared a um, post from, I think it's Facebook. Um, it's, a, it's a paid promotion from Dan Murphy. He's using a couple of Melbourne influencers. To be honest, I didn't know who they were. Sabrina, did you? A couple of people have weighed in in the comments going, I've got no clue who these are. I think he's a Geelong footballer. And his influencer wife, who who has her own business. Do you think that I strike you as a person who knows? Oh no no, I'm just looking for the, yeah, it's, no, not that you are a person. No but idea, just... but I'm so out of touch. Yeah. I feel like um, I feel like maybe we need a, a guest co-host who's about 21 to come on and and fill us in on who are influencers on TikTok. But they're saying that there is one type of influencer that influences only reach 21 year olds. There are mature influencers. I mean, you know, like there are people who, you know, they're inspired, unemployed, you know, reach a wide diversity of people that, again, didn't register in my world until people that were my age. But anyway, so yeah, I, I don't think there is one influencer um, because there's no one demographic. But in this case, um, the comment I was making was that Emma Hawkins, who is apparently a successful businesswoman, in addition to being an influencer, or by both of those overlap, um, posts, I'm now officially a beer drinker, first time in forever. Introducing fruity beer, beer but not as you know it. Loved taste testing this with my husband. We had lots of fun. It's light, easy, and so enjoyable. Bring on summer now. Um, get your hands on some fruity beers. So, you know, take that celebrity endorsement as a paid endorsement as it is, if you like. But clearly the fact that Dan Murphy's and you'd presume uh, CUB from who, who manufactured fruity beer have paid her um, or, you know, and it was a paid ad, that's clearly the target, women that don't drink beer. You know, and that's not me saying that. That's yep. you know, <laughs> don't at me saying that women don't drink beer. But this is clearly a, a woman that doesn't drink beer, and that would seem to be the target. And you know, there, there's been a lot of scorn in the Facebook um, group about it, um, which I get if you're coming from a beer purist. But what is beer purism these days? And the fact that a major brewery is using its financial muscle to target people that identify as not being beer drinkers 
as somebody else said, and I, I should have their name, but I don't, I'm sorry, uh, listener. Um, but somebody said, if they want to prime the market for us to come in and cultivate later, that's fantastic. And that's exactly, the, the more people are drinking beer, the more potential audience there is. So yeah, so I just, yeah, thank you to um, uh, last week's uh, co-host Michael Morgan for sharing that, because um, I hadn't seen that in my Facebook uh, feed, but uh, yeah, I think it's a very... You know, I had been seeing the targeting, the pre-launch for this ad, but Dan Murphy's kept saying, beer but not as you know it, what's the launch? And a few weeks ago, I sent it to someone, I was like, oh, what? Sent it to our journalists. I was like, do you have any idea what this is about? Like, why is it all of a sudden in my Facebook feed, this ad? Um, and it had never occurred to me when we wrote this uh, fruity beer story that they were one and the same target ad. But clearly, as a female of about the same age, I'm the target demographic for the ads for this beer. And they are showing up in my Facebook feed. This is why I don't mute any of my ads, uh, because, again, clearly if you're getting it, I'm not. They are very specifically targeting a gender profile and an age profile um, that they've identified as... Less likely to be a current beer drinker. And I think, that you know, the, the conversation in the Facebook group, I think, you know, is right. We need... We need beer to not be a dirty word. We need it to not be the poster child of over drinking. We need it to be something that is that everybody is willing to give a go um, because that is what we need for all of these great craft businesses to survive. And so if $20 million worth of advertising is going to bring in, you know, we've been talking about a long time, new people to the category, then, you know, it's not called a seltzer. That's great news. Testify. <laughs> as, as they say in the Church of Craft Beer. That wraps up another week of news. Your hosts have been me, Matt Kirkegaard, and my good friend and colleague, Sabrina Kunz. The show is produced by Vivian Topalovich and edited by Joanne Hilder. We thank Bintani, Rallings Labels, Stickers and Packaging, and Bluestone Yeast for their support in making this episode possible. And if you like this, if you have a business that supplies the brewing industry, as one of our recent guests on a Brewery Pro uh, podcast described, we have a powerful reach within the brewing industry. So if you want to get your product out in front of the industry and keep this podcast going, you can advertise and get a little bit of the rallying effect for yourselves. Thank you to our listeners for listening. Share your thoughts on the show by emailing producer at brewsnews.com.au or leave a review on your favorite podcasting service. That really does help other people find it. And with that, we are out for another week.